In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus 28. With the tabernacle's design established, God's instructions now turn to the adornment of the priests. Aaron and his sons are appointed as priests, and in this chapter, we detail the intricate and ornate ceremonial garments they are to wear. Why is God so concerned with having men set apart for priesthood? And why are their vestments so intricate? Let's find out. Good morning. Today is Monday, December 19th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. This morning, I'd like to thank our underwriter, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. Well, without much further ado, why don't we jump right into it? We have a lot of text to cover, so please join me in welcoming my guest to help us examine Exodus 28, the Reverend David Duke, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Newfane, New York, and St. John Lutheran Church in Youngstown, New York. He's also the adjunct professor of Old Testament at Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary in St. Catharines, Ontario. Uh, Professor Duke, good morning and welcome back to the program. Well, good morning. It's my pleasure. Um, um, you did a really good job trying to make this sound like something that's not going to put you to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, is, it is detailed. It mm-hmm. has. Uh, um, did I mention it was detailed? <laughs> so it's detailed. There, intricate detail, I think. But you know, at the same time, it also reminds us, and I know you'll get into it, but it just reminds us as I look, say, at the average worship space and even even vestments of maybe we think of Protestant vestments. There, there, we've we've stripped away so much of the ornateness, and I know there's a lot of history behind that. But you know, when I come and I wear my my Easter uh, chasuble, it's a little bit detailed and intricate. People kind of go, "Oh, okay, that's that's uh that's fancy," you know. And it's like, why are mm-hmm. they surprised? This is this has some historical precedent. But I'm sure well, we'll get into that. I think surprise is going to really help us get through this uh, with some understanding. Uh, that's an actually part of what's going on in Exodus, Exodus 28. And uh, I was wondering if uh, if the hearer might take some time to um, listen uh, while Pastor Boo reads it and listen for, for things that are repeated – and repetition helps us build significance so that it's not just lists of thread, right, and colors. But things get repeated from beginning to end that helps organize the way we think about things. Uh, and then we're going to listen for things that are very unusual. And not just like ancient Near East, they use goat skins or whatever, but like something that's just bizarre. And that helps us to sort of organize things. And as always, because Jesus himself teaches us to, is to listen for things that are clearly Christological, things that have to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins, and it's in 28 as well. And then I think we're going to try to draw a picture in our mind's eye. Uh, so I hand it back to you, Pastor Boo. Yeah, that I- sounds great. Well, before I take it from you, let me just ask, is there anything else that you want to lay the foundation before? Because I'm going to read, um, as you suggested, I'm going to read the whole text. Uh, now, don't don't change that dial. I'm going to read verses one through forty-three. Mm-hmm. But as uh, as the pastor said here, you know there there are something for to look for, right? Those christological elements, the repetition that's often in Hebrew for emphasis. But uh, anything else you want to lay the foundation for, though, before we go, because uh, we just got out of talking about some of the oil, the lamps, and the court of the tabernacle, and the bronze altar. Um, anything else that you want to make sure people are have in mind? 
Yeah, I think you want to listen for two things that are repeated an awful lot, and that is Aaron and the sons of Israel. All right, here we go. All right. This is going to be chapter 28 from the ESV. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel. To serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signet, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front of the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod and at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. 
So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place, to bring them to regular remembrance before Yahweh. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and you they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahweh. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of the Israel on his heart before Yahweh regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before Yahweh, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to Yahweh. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before Yahweh. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. All right, pencils down, folks. Hopefully the picture that you have drawn looks exactly as described. I, I said this when we were going through the descriptions of the tabernacle. Uh, it's so intricate and it, it is repetitious, uh, obviously for a very good reason, as you're going to point out. But I, I said, you know, I, I, I hope that Yahweh, God, I hope he gave Moses sort of a, like maybe a diagram too, just to, just to, <laughs> just to drive it home. Uh, and of course the guest did point out that at least in terms of the tabernacle, he did show him on the mountain. Uh, we don't get that here for the garments. But yes, we have this very intricate description of what must have been, especially in these wilderness places, a just absolute beautiful garment, just striking. And that's one of the things that you should have heard repeated, especially because it was repeated almost last. And that is, you shall make them for glory and beauty. And that actually serves as an inclusio. It's a beginning and an end. We heard it in verse 2, and we heard it in verse 40. Uh, uh, you shall make them for glory and beauty. And I think that's one of the keys to understanding this chapter is that we're talking about glory and beauty, along with the, the functional things that the Aaron and, and his sons are doing, the priests. And then also uh, that they're doing it for the sons of Israel. That's another thing that's repeated. It's, gosh, it's 9, 11 through 12, 21, 29. It's four or five times right there that we're hearing about the names of the sons of Israel uh, being put on, uh, like, <laughs> inscribed on uh, on the uh, the stuff that they're wearing. So you're, you're blown away by the visual 
and also their significance with the the uh, the stuff they're wearing, the actual clothing, the bits and pieces. It's a really weird thing, though, isn't it? The you've got this ephod, and you've got urim and thummim, which is you know English pronunciation urim and thummim. But man, it sounds so much cooler urim and thummim that way, right? It is. Those words snuck up on me in the reading. Otherwise, <laughs> I would have put a little flair into them. <laughs> <laughs> But, we yeah, don't we even have know these... what they are, but they're so cool. <laughs> you know? Well, we have these plates of judgment, the 12 gems, the the blue. And it's, it, blue, blue is an yeah. interesting color. Uh, yeah, and, blue I, and I'm sure out. that you're un, you understand that blue doesn't happen a whole lot in nature. I mean, the sky, of course. But yeah. we often see in, say, classical literature, things like the sea being described as like a wine-colored sea. Uh, to the point where there are some folks who said – that said that the color blue didn't exist. Now, hear me right. Not that, <laughs> not that the wavelength that produces for us the color blue wasn't visible, but rather there really weren't words for blue because different languages have a variety of limited abilities to describe colors, and blue was kind of a, a later addition to them. Well, in contrast to some of those arguments, here's Moses writing Exodus talking about blue. But there's also yeah. something to be said about some of the difficulty, especially when it comes to like the jewels, knowing exactly what they are. Uh, but we still have this very just uh, amazing looking. I, I have the benefit that the hearers don't. And that is I'm looking at a picture. <laughs> so I'm looking at a picture on my screen and uh, it's, it is. It's just amazing. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot to that kind of strikes you once you get past the, the repetition to give us the beginning and the end, which is going to help us with significance. You also get those highly unusual things like the stones, but that, there's that one that keeps repeating too, and that's the onyx, uh, onyx epaulettes. And I did a little work on that to understand just what it is that's, that's so uh, – well, cool uh, about the Onyx, O-N-Y-X, not the uh, the app for getting around into the wilderness, O-N-X, I guess is what it is. But O-N-Y-X, <laughs> it's a particular kind of a stone that has bands in it. And what I mean by that is you've got black and white interleaved. So in other words, if you're looking down at it from the top, you're going to see just black. And then just you get your cold chisel out and you hammer away at it and you get rid of that black layer, there's going to be a white layer. And then you hammer away at that white layer and there's going to be a black layer under it. And uh, what's important about that is that if you've got any kind of artistic skill, what you do is you hammer away that first black layer and get to the white layer. And then you get your fine tools out and you start like doing I think bas relief is what it might be called, or, you know, I'm reaching, I don't know stonework very well, but you, you carve into the white layer to have a, a, a relief down to the black layer so that the white layer, whatever you're trying to, to inscribe, stands out against this gorgeous purity of blackness. Uh, so it's white on black. And that would be the names of the sons of Israel that are put on these they're inscribed on these stones in that way. Like um, you can kind of think of like ribbon candy uh, if you if you're still having trouble uh, picturing picturing it. And you take one of these big things and you put it on an epaulette, which is like the military wear on their shoulders, with the little the little uh, 
fringes and stuff like that, gold and fringes. They put instead of cardboard or stars or whatever, you got these big, giant, valuable stones that have been artistically crafted. And that's one of the first things you're going to see when you look at this guy coming out of the, the, the tabernacle or for church services or whatever it is they're doing these things for, wearing them for. It's, it's going to be remarkable for anyone. Include and you know, in addition to the Urim and Thummim, which are on the chest there, and then, and then you're going to have the bells in the hymn, which is really interesting, and also that description in verses 33 to 35 get us pretty close to our first Christological thing that we've seen. There is a Christological thing. The death and resurrection of Jesus is here, and it's foreshadowed in two ways with those little bells. The first one is, it says, um, so that he shall not die. Whereas at 35, yeah, and it shall be on Aaron, these bells. They're pomegranate-shaped bells. Uh, And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before Yahweh and when he comes out so that he doesn't die. And the idea is there, I don't know if that's supposed to be a a purpose clause or whatever, but I think the idea is if you stop hearing the bells, you should figure out a way to tie a rope to his ankle and pull him out because he's dead, right? As long as you hear the bells, he's doing okay. And and Uh, I've I've heard this thought before, of course. We we, we, there was the tradition, if I'm not mistaken, where they would actually tie the rope around the priest as he goes into the Holy of Holies, lest he mm-hmm. die. And if he dies, they can't go in because only he could go in and only during that certain time and they would yank him out. And I wasn't right. sure if that was, uh, you know, honestly something that was rooted in history or if it was something that maybe people just thought of later. Is that something that they actually did? I think it. I think it's a fair enough thing to uh, assume they did because I mean you have that problem. If he dies now, what do we do? And that's because of the second thing that is foreshadowed here, and that's the death of Nadab and Abihu, two of the sons of Aaron. Everyone who reads this uh, after Moses wrote it already knows that Nadab and Abihu died. They were killed by Yahweh because they came into the holy place, and they probably weren't even doing anything terribly wrong. It was that fearsome a thing that you should be extra double careful, right? And that's uh, Leviticus 10. I think, I, I don't know if I said it right the first time. They, they are killed. And we know that by the time Moses writes down Exodus chapter 28, uh, anybody who's reading this is like, oh yeah, that's right. And that is uh, when you get into the presence of God, you're in a, a place that is very dangerous. And we see... Christ's own death right there in two ways. First, in the big warning, the Aaron, the priest that stands there in the place of uh, God and the place of people, the the go-between, right? Uh, That he is, you know, susceptible to death. And then we already know from the narrative that two of the priests, his own sons, did die. And Christ, the Son of God, did enter the holy place of God and died. But in so doing, he sprinkled his own blood as the uh, as the, uh, the author of the Hebrews teaches us that it would be okay for all of us to go in there so that we don't have to be afraid anymore. Hmm. Uh, that's, I think, the most significant part of the uh, – of the tearing of the temple curtain in two when Jesus dies, right? So we have those things right here in this description of the clothing that the priests are supposed to wear. And we haven't even really gotten to the clothing they're supposed to wear yet. Right. But there it is. 
Well, you know, I want to bring out for those who may not exactly remember, you mentioned Nadab and Abihu. That is Leviticus 10, uh, the first few verses. I'm just going to read those real quick. Uh, Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. Uh, And it goes on, of course, where... Moses says to Aaron, you know, <laughs> this is why I've given you all these rules. So we, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we have this instant and you, what you bring out is so important because I think because of uh, our way of telling stories today, like we're watching a movie or even hearing an account, we, we think of things happening as they're being told to us unfolding. And we forget that as a historical document, this isn't being related in real time as it happens. Moses is writing to people um, well after these events. And when he includes things like Nadab and Abihu, you know, as you said, they're going to know, they're going to say, oh yeah, I know those guys. And I think we lose that sometimes, partly because we don't always know those guys, right? right. It doesn't, doesn't strike us the same way. Right, Nadab and Abihu, who? You know, who? <laughs> right. <laughs> right, and I, I just happen to be the Old Testament professor, so I, I've got all those connections. They just sort of flash into my mind. Right. And, you know, we have a, a closely attached. I mean, this is really closely attached. See, the, these problems go together kind of like they're webbed, and it's really hard to just sort of grab one. But, like, this whole notion of Nadab and Abihu, these cl- this clothing they're supposed to wear, the bells they wear and stuff like that, that goes, uh, and I said it's Christological, that goes very quickly to the Day of Atonement. And so we have things like Urim and Thummim, which we don't even know what they are. Apparently, they were in practice before uh, before uh, Exodus 28, and God sort of like he ex-mythologizes it. He takes it out of their, their Canaanite um, uh, bad religion and puts it into his good religion, the same way a lot of the sacrifices must have been, because it doesn't say, all right, I want you guys to sacrifice. It's, all right, if you have to sacrifice, this is what I want you to do now. This one's going to be a wave offering, and it's going to be for this. And we don't even know what a wave offering is. We're just sort of making our best guess. I mean, we know, but we don't know. You know, We don't know where it comes from, a lot of this stuff. But we do know where the Day of Atonement comes from. And that's the the they dab in a bihu uh, um, um, episode that takes uh, at Leviticus 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. It's seven chapters to work out. And it has to do with our uncleanness and so on and so forth. So the whole arrangement of the camp, the the location of God in the midst of the camp and the wilderness being pushed out that far. And then, uh, and then you've got, uh, the, the, the clothing that's being the set aside and consecrated the men and their clothing that's being set aside and consecrated and so on and so forth, all leading to that day of atonement thing, which we glom onto as Christians. Again, uh, the, uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus <laughs> outside Jerusalem, right. To, to cleanse Jerusalem in heaven, I suppose you could say. So there's, there's so much, that that comes just by a, a we're just at the beginning of it almost of this study of you know thread that's blue and scarlet or purple and scarlet <laughs> that's supposed to be uh, trimming the the gold and blue of the main parts of the clothing. It just how how does God do this? How does the Holy Spirit make it happen like this? 
I, I mean, I'm astounded. Move, I'm right, astounded well, by this. You know, I do want to move into those details, but since you brought it up, you know, there are some things in this text and other places where there is ambiguity, and a lot of our uh, ordinary parishioners. Um, who put their faith, hope, and trust, who have their faith, hope, and trust in Christ, and because of their faith, then take the Bible as God's word. And seriously, sometimes they're bothered by the fact that there's ambiguity or missing pieces. Uh, what would you say to those folks? I'm put you on the spot a little bit. But what would hmm. you say to those folks who say, you know, well, it bothers me that we don't know everything about this because, you know, are we missing something or are we doing something wrong? Like the, the uh, Urim and Thummim, you know, we don't know exactly what that is. We know what it was used for, but it bothers folks that they don't have all the answers. Oh, yeah. You know, and this one comes up an awful lot because, you know, as a professor, first of all, I was a layperson too, and then I was trained, right? And then I became a professor and I'm teaching laymen how to become pastors to enter into that vocation. We're just ordinary people and we have these same questions. And so I've heard it in my own heart an awful lot and I hear it in the mouths of my students and also my parishioners. Uh, this is frightening, and it is. But our confession about Scripture is is that, first of all, I mean, the, the actual center of it, of our confession about it, is, is that it is perfectly clear when it speaks Christ. And so no matter what, you always have what Christ himself says about the Old Testament. It is the Son of Man being delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified or killed, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that a preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins be preached in his name uh, throughout all nations. That is the Old Testament. So when it comes to Urim and Thummim, and you're like, man, what is that? Uh, we don't really know, and we think they misused it. Uh, God seems to be here trying to take them out of use. But then we read later, they put them back into use, you know, and uh, as, um, and what, you just get, what, what does that mean? What were they? Well, if you think of uh, of Urim and Thummim as a pair of two-sided dice <laughs> or giant coins for, for flipping, heads I win, tails you lose kind of thing, right? I'm pausing to let the crowd stop laughing here because that was you – know, <laughs> it's just – but you have these things. And I think the idea was – and we can we kind of see it when Saul goes to use the Urim and Thummim, which is already a red flag. It's like, hmm, Saul's doing it. We might want to be careful. Basically, if you've got to use the Urim and Thummim, you're, you're, asking, you're asking God a yes or no question. And that means that you have studied all of Deuteronomy, all the wisdom that's in there, wisdom to rule, right, especially especially if you're a king, and you said, you know what? I give up. I can't figure this one out. I'm going to ask the Lord God, Yahweh, right? And so you, you get the priest to do it for you, and you say, should I attack that city up there? And the guy takes Urim and throws it in the air, makes sure it spins over at least three or four times, and if it comes up one side, it's yes. If it comes up the other side, it's no, right? And hopefully it's no, because you don't ever really want to go to war. But if it comes up, <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> then you got to flip through meme. But and does it question, ever say, you know, outlook hazy, ask again later? Well, that's, that's the problem. It's the magic eight ball, right? But through meme is where it gets really tricky because it's like, well, the second question is, and will I be, will I, will I be uh, favored? And if he flips the, if it's yes, 
for Urim, like, should I attack? Yes, you should attack. Am I going to be favored? If that one comes up, no. <laughs> well, what <laughs> do you now do? what do you do? You right. know, that was kind of sort of what happened to Saul was like, the, yeah, you're going to do this, but everybody's going to die. You know, that happened in Judges too, but they didn't do, I don't think they did Urim and Thummim there. But when you're talking about the will of God and he's going to send you to your death, well, it's a decree from God. You'd better do it or things worse things are going to happen. And we see that with David later on and his uh, encounter with God uh, and the census where either Satan or God enticed him to do that census. And then uh, we get from there again, the threshing floor uh, where we, we, we buy that and build the temple on it. And that's a whole lot of theology right there. So you have right. all sorts of things happening and. And, I, and I've gone on to Urim and Thummim. We don't really know. And it's all right, right that we don't really know because the thing finally answers to, well, this repentance, this uh, – as we're in Advent, a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is in hand. It's good news. Uh, repent. Look, I'm warning you before I kill you. You know, repent. And it's, uh, what is it? Prepare the royal highway. Every heart shall be uh, uh, made a throne for God and all uh, all those great images that we have in our hymnody is tied up in things we don't know. It really is. It's not that we don't know. We know, but we don't know the details about Urim and Thummim. We don't know the details about the early parts of the of the the, uh, the sacrifice system. We just know that Jesus fulfills that, and right. it's fine. It's good enough. It's really interesting, and there's a lot of room for play. Like you, you said, like you have a picture there. See, right. I wonder what it really looked like, like when they finally got the skillful artists together. You know how artists are. They never do things right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, but it's going to be exactly what God wanted because they're being empowered by the Holy Spirit to to weave these things, to sew these things together according to the instructions that Moses – and Moses was not was not going to uh, just leave them to it. He was going to overlook them, right, or be over their shoulders, looking over their shoulders. They're going to make this thing the way he wants it, but they're going to make it the way they want it according to the freedom they have in the gospel of God. To make these clothes, you know, these clothes, and this this uh, this outfit uh, to please God, and it's going to be through their own personality, and it's going to look incredibly different from one artist to another. It's just that's the way arts artists are, and it's freedom. It, there's room and space, and God doesn't like get mad at you. He does if you got go into His presence without the 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 blood of Christ on you, though. That's when things bad things start happening. But if you like got this epaulette one inch off to the right, <laughs> you know it's not. That's not the. That's not the thing. Uh, well, see, and, and that's the not knowing part is where the fun is. Well, there's something uh, to be said too that he doesn't. He gives a lot of details about how it should be put together, but there's also a lot of ambiguity even mm -hmm. in his own description. So he asks for in the Hebrew something. I think it's more like wisdom, but skillfully woven, right? Woven with wisdom. Someone who knows what they're doing. Get some people who know what they're doing to do this. I'm not going to micromanage them, but I do have some specifications for it. Anybody who's been yep. in the design business knows how difficult it is to work with clients <laughs> and to yeah. work with what they say. Uh, but if your client is God, you want to make sure you get it as close to what he wants as possible. I tell yeah, you what, yeah. uh, I want to talk more about the, uh, the colors and the significance. And also I have a question, and that is, where do these materials come from? But we're going to have to do that when we come back from our break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. Don't change that dial. Pastor Duke and I will keep on going with Exodus 28 when we return. We'll see you on the other side. Take a look around you. 
Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are, there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me today is the Reverend Professor David Duke, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Newfane, New York, and St. John Lutheran Church in Youngstown, New York. Before we jump back into the text, I want to remind you at home that if you have any questions or comments about today's show, feel free to direct them to me. Or if you want to get in touch with our guest, you can also write me and I'll put you in touch. That email address is pastorboo at gmail.com. I'm also happy to answer your questions on or off the air. It's up to you. All right, now, Pastor, before the break, uh, we were talking about you know some of the ambiguity and uncertainty there is when we're so far removed from the word being placed down. Not that there is any uncertainty or ambiguity about God's plan for our salvation, and, and mostly because we believe in the Scriptures because of the faith that God has given us, right? We don't actually have faith. Maybe you could argue, but we don't have faith because the Bible tells us so, as the children's song goes. God gives us faith, and then it's through that faith we're able to then look at the Scriptures and say, this is the Word of God, and then trust. Whenever there's ambiguity, God knows what He's doing. But in this passage, we now are getting into some of the actual details, and there's a lot of gold. You You asked us to look for repetition, and the repetition that I saw was gold blue and purple mm-hmm. and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. At least that's how I say it. I don't know if it's twinned linen or twine. I think a twine, but I don't know. The point is we have these being repeated over and over again by skillful workers, people who know what they're doing. Um, interesting. What, what does all that mean? And where do they get any of this stuff? Well, I, I think this has to do with the ordinary. Uh, and one of the things I think if we're Lutherans, uh, one of the things that I think that Lutheranism has given to the world, among other things, many other things, is the notion of the ordinary. Uh, I think it's changed the world. And that's this kind of thing that, well, skillful people are valuable. Uh, you don't have to be a brainiac. You can be. You don't, you don't have to be a, a, a doctor or a lawyer. You can be. You can also be skilled, skilled with your hand and with your eye. And you take ordinary things and you give it to skillful people and they turn it into, well, I don't want to say the word magic, but you turn it into something almost divine. Okay, you know, divine. It really is. Uh, God is in the ordinary you wake up in the morning and you put on your 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 linen robe one leg at a time. I guess is what you're trying to do right. here. You you do that just like everybody else, and then you get to work. And your work is God's work. And in this case, of course, it's a special thing. But you're you get your linen out, and uh, it's from God. He uh, he gives the prosperity, like he he says in Deuteronomy uh, 18. And I'm going to give you the the fruits of the land here. And then when you get some, I want, when you get it, I want you to give me some back because I, I kind of like what I gave you, you know? And so he's giving you these skills. You're putting them to work and you're giving it back to God. So you, you've got linen, you've got yarn. It comes from God. Prosperity. These people weren't 
uh, they were slaves, but as we remember, uh, the pro- the reason they were slaves is because they were so prosperous uh, that the Egyptians were afraid of them. And then when they left, the Egyptians gave them everything they had, uh, you know, even the the rings in their nose, right? The, they just handed them everything. And so they had a bunch of stuff and then God gave them skills to make it. So you've got things that are woven, you've got things that are, you know, knitted, you've got like, and that, that covers like yarn and linen and, uh, and thread and things like that. That's, it's just ordinary. That's, you know, ordinary on steroids, so to speak. It's, that's all it is. I think it's fantastic because it's what we do. We take felt craft stuff and we turn it into these beautiful banners in our church because you've got somebody skillful and desiring to do something beautiful by the power of the Holy Spirit, even though it's just, you know, um, some glitter and some glue. It turns that, that those things into some gorgeous uh, decorations. And then, you know, maybe you want to do a little bit better and you, you put you, you pool your money and you buy something from someone who's professional at it. And then you've really got something, you know, like you mentioned, your chasuble, those things are, those things are, wow. You know, some of them are anyway, they've got, they've got weaving and decorations and colors in them that are dynamite. Right. Yeah. It's amazing what they can do, but you know, I, on Thursday we talked about again, the tabernacle and what I thought was interesting is I asked the same question, right? It's like, okay, where does all this gold come from? And of course I'm asking while also really knowing, and we know that the gold came from the Egyptians, but I wonder if these people were also in Egypt uh, having uh, done some of these skills in their service to the Egyptians. How many things did they make Whoa. for various gods? How many things did they make for pharaohs or high priests in the, um, in the ancient Egyptian religion? And so now they're taking these same skills and putting them, pressing them into service for God. So we also see that um, the proper use of the gifts now being redirected. Oh, Pastor Boo, that is a wonderful insight. And I really like that insight that they were forced to make things for the Egyptians, and now they're making it for God. Because I really like that as a basic understanding of the practices of, sorry, of the practices that Yahweh um, commands. Uh, concerning the life around the tabernacle to the Israelites is basically just taking what they were doing, which is perverted and corrupt and corroded and turning it into this pure, purified religion, God's religion, God's practices, you know, which has to do first with love for neighbor. Uh, and and again, I, see, I connect that and I'm, I'm, I'm laboring to connect that, that love for neighbor connects to the beautiful thing that we're observing here through skillful, ordinary people. They're just you and me with particular skills. And they've been taken out of the slavery, and now they're put into the service of God. And it's just beautiful. And they're going to do stuff beautifully. Talk to us a little bit then about the colors. You know, what what are the significances of these colors? You said they're in the ordinary, and, and maybe that's all there is to it. But certainly God had a reason for choosing these particular colors, or is that just what they had on hand? Well, I could make stuff up. I really don't actually know. I just think in the way I, I was reading this, and I, I went through this a few times. Uh, this is not an ordinary text for, uh, by the way, for Old Testament studies. Uh, there's a lot of Old Testament, right? Um, I, I went over this a few times, and I think what what we're supposed to get out of this is what you brought up at the very beginning of our time together today, and that was when you put on your fancy chasuble, people are surprised. I think when Aaron comes out. Out, it's 
It's just a visual uh, fireworks. Well, fireworks are visual. (laughs) It's just, it blows you away visually. So, I mean, if you can just imagine, just, just sort of close your eyes, unless you're driving, close your eyes and just sort of listen to this. This guy walks out, boom, you've got this gigantic blue turban on the guy's head. And it's got a golden plate set right in the middle, right above his forehead. That's just like, what? What is that? And then you've got this thing called an ephod. What is an ephod? Well, it's a vest that is really fancy. And those epaulets I talked about earlier with those big stones on them that are skillfully, by ordinary people, skillfully inscribed with the names of the sons of Israel. And then you've got the, 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 all this golden stuff that's all around shining right so you've got this guy who's moving and light is starting to you know play on the thing and you've got urim and thumim with uh, which is which is basically the judgment of israel on the heart of the priest which you know christ again right uh, and then you have these lovely long overcoats, and I like overcoats that you and I would wear because we're from the north, and overcoats are for to function as warmth. There, the overcoat was like the the final kind of like like a lovely lady in the 1930s coming to a, a dinner party with an overcoat on. It's just basically a decoration to make everything else stand out. You have these overcoats that are just there, and like you mentioned, the colors we have the purest gold play all over the place and then blue and then the blue is highlighted by purple and scarlet yarns it's just gorgeous you look at that (laughs) and you're blown away a rows of stones fine jewels right the 12 tribes of israel i think is in three rows uh you cannot get your eyes off him is the point I think that's the thing. And, and when I draw that, to, and this is a pastoral Jeremy ad now, if you'll, you'll forgive me, a lot of times uh, our, 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 our people are looking forward to dying to go see their loved ones. And that's fine. I think that's a good way for God to keep you in the faith, right? I want to die and see my dead husband. I want to see die and see my dead father. And I certainly do. You know, I want to see my dead relatives who are who are uh, died in the faith. But I think that when we get there, we certainly are going to see our loved ones. But our eyes and our our beings are going to be transfixed on this beautiful high priest standing in the presence of God. And then we'll be, of course, in the unadulterated presence of God ourselves. But there he is, and we will not be able to tear our eyes away from him for all eternity because he's so beautiful. That man who died for us and has on, I mean, you think about the descriptions of post-resurrection Jesus, um, after he, uh, post-ascension Jesus, especially in, in Revelation, where he's got, you know, uh, uh, fire below his waist and, and hot bronze all over the place. And uh, his tongue is, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And there's thunder and lightning going on all around him and stuff like that. I think that's that's the ex- the experience of heaven and so when this high priest comes out it's it just blows you away yeah, emotionally i think you, you get struck emotionally by him uh your being is struck and uh that's the the man that stands between you and um a, a god of fire there that's all that's all <laughs> but i love it though right because i mean you're really painting a picture for us that's yeah. so important you know i do have to think though also from pastoral point of view uh, if anybody in the crowd said uh oh, 
That's too Catholic. <laughs> oh, well, too bad yeah, well, for them. <laughs> You're missing you know. out on something big, you know. No, but, I'm no but Romanist, uh, but I'm telling you, this is it's about beauty. Like, that's well, the thing. It's repeated at the beginning and the end for glory and beauty. <laughs> that's the function of them. It, God oh. is actually saying, I want these to function for glory and beauty. They're not significant otherwise. And well, it doesn't have to be that we see with the tabernacle too. Well, with yeah. all of this and with the temple later, you know, the glory and beauty is so important. Uh, the glory makes sense. You know, you go to say a, a Roman cathedral in Europe or a Lutheran cathedral, or you go to uh, even like your average Eastern Orthodox church, even if they're in a strip mall, you go in and you <laughs> yeah. can't help but, because they're gilded in gold and icons draw your eyes to the heavens. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's beautiful. It's maybe not our style, but it's beautiful. Beautiful. And you, and you go, wow, you know, this is, this is something. And people go on vacation, they visit these places, they take pictures and then they come back to their home churches and maybe it's not very ornate and they think, well, we don't want that here. Well, why not? You know, I'm not There's, saying you should spend all the church's coffers on icons, but at the same time, you know, God does care about beauty. And, and, and we also associate that with bringing him glory. I think so. And and I think it's a, it's both, right? It's another one of those things where it's it's the Lutheran yes, right? Well, which is it? Is it for God? Is it for us? Yes, it's for us it's for it's god is one of us you know uh jesus is our brother and that's a i think that's something that gets that i was i I don't know if i meant to emphasize this or not but we keep talking about aaron and his sons he's the brother of moses it's he's a brotherly familial thing going on here um that that that's our our brother up there who's so beautiful look at him you know and in our sinful state we want to kill him and that's exactly what happened. But in, in our saintly state, we look at him and just marvel. God did this for us, you know, and we're doing this for him. It's a wonderful participation. It's a communion, if I may. Now, <laughs> even even the clothing belong to communion, right? If I could be, you know, a, this will come out of left field, but if I could be like a little cynical, if you're one of the people of Israel and you know that Moses is the intercessor, you you trust him, you believe him, but do you raise your eyebrow a little when his brother ends up being the priest? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that, oh boy, you, you really have, that is uh, <laughs> out of left field and you've stepped into an abyss <laughs> because there is a huge battle that goes on throughout. It's a subtext of the entire Pentateuch is, is it Moses and his family or not, you know, and, and uh, you get the Korah's rebellion that really kind of highlights that exactly. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, envy involved right. in that. Why? Why Moses? And he's a murderer, by the way. He's a refuge, a refugee, a re- not a refugee. The other thing, where you're escaping from justice, right? A fugitive. Fugitive. That's the word. Yes, that's right. He's, he's on the run, and he's a murderer too. And it's like, what this guy? You know? And then he's he doesn't really want to be there, and you know, oh man. So yeah, the family thing mm-hmm. is a big deal. And remember the what? <laughs> the golden idol, the golden calf. Uh, it was the Levites. That's the believe. That's the family of Moses, right? They're the ones who rally to Moses and kill their own brothers, right? Yeah. Um, the Israelites. And that becomes – that's what this is all about uh, when it comes up. That's going to be the one change uh, after the, the golden calf is it's Levites, you know, not now, just Aaron and his sons. On the other hand, though, you know, I think it could be – you could easily point to the fact that, well, when you guys were still enslaved in Egypt, it was God sending me and Aaron into the Pharaoh. 
You know, we're yeah. the ones taking their lives in our hands. We were the ones who were told by God himself, uh, by the way, go tell the Pharaoh to let the people go. Oh, also, he won't do it. Now go. <laughs> and, and you're like, okay. It's kind of like what you described earlier. Should I go to war? Okay. Is it going to be favorable to me? No. Oh, well, <laughs> right. I guess I still have to do it. You still uh, have to, yeah. Now God has this long-term plan. And we see that. So at, on the other hand, it does make perfect sense that Aaron, who was um, the prophet to Moses as Moses was God to Pharaoh, and we see here that he continues in that role in his family. But we also see with you know some of his sons and, of course, the priests and prophets that even follow, we're still sinful human beings. No one's ever claimed that Moses or his family or anybody else is perfect. I wouldn't even say that uh, the most uh, adherent Jew who still puts their faith, hope, and trust in the laws of Moses would describe Moses as someone who's perfect. I mean, I don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Well, that's the thing. He he actually claims that for himself, and that's the sin of Moses. He right. took glory that didn't belong to him, and God killed him for it, which is just like, wow. You know, just one little slip. He got mad. And have you ever been mad as a pastor there, uh, Pastor Boo? <laughs> oh, no, never. I'm always very... <laughs> Whatever it you, says in Titus that I have to be in, in Timothy, that's what I'm at. Oh, yes. To a, to a T, perfectly. <laughs> right. It's just, yeah, you look at poor Moses. He just got mad after some number of years, 38 years or whatever, and God killed him for that. So yeah. that, I think he did that on purpose. I mean, it, it, he was hard on Moses on purpose for that reason. And we see that God buried Moses so that no one would find him, so that they wouldn't worship him, right? Uh, that, that was very important to God to get rid of Moses. Uh, which is harsh. But again, you have to understand it from God's perspective. He's trying to save us. He's not trying to help us have our nice traditions and feel feel really warm and cuddly all the time. He's, he wants to get us out of this into his realm. And uh, we just don't want to. Yet we praise him for doing it anyway. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the great uh, tension of being a human being on this side of the church triumphant is we don't really like it. <laughs> <laughs> but God is is constantly pulling us and I think appealing to us through a turban, epaulets, ephods, you know, look at this gorgeous thing. Come on over. It's going to hurt, but come on over anyway. It's going to be beautiful for all eternity. Now, we only oh, have that, a few – well, I was say, we only have a few minutes left in the show, and I want to make sure we get to this, and maybe there's you know not a whole lot to say, but we've been describing the high priest. In mm-hmm. verse 40, for Aaron's sons, I guess – Ordinary priests, right? Regular priests. Uh, they basically have sort of these ephods of white linen, right? They make coats and sashes and some caps yeah. uh, for glory and beauty, which is beautiful. And, and mm. that's the repetition. So they seem to have this, um, and that this seems, well, no, it seems to be there is a hierarchy in the priesthood. And so, you know, are we to read anything into that? Is there, uh, is there this idea that the, the high priest is sort of, the representative of God, while the individual regular priests are intercessors between the people and the high priest. I mean, I, I don't know. You tell me. I, I don't know either. I think uh, that that I'm almost embarrassed not to know the answer to that because that's an excellent question. And that's what you always say about questions that are hard. That was excellent. Uh, no, I, I, I think sometimes it's just utility. It's like there's there's a lot of work to be done and you need the high priest to be doing this particular work of being the, the guy who goes in. But you have all this other representational work that has to be done too. And you need a whole array of it. And I, and I think also it, 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 getting into a kind of um, beautiful thing here 
too, because it's for glory and beauty that they're wearing lesser stuff. It's the array of them that makes it beautiful as well. You have the centerpiece. If you think again, like your 1930s and 40s uh, musicals, where you have the, the all the dancers uh, there to uh, highlight the star of the show, the 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 great beauty that's going to come down in her own costume down those stairs. If you kind of see in your mind's eye, the 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 line of of people men and women who are kicking their legs up whilst the gorgeous woman comes down the stairs in a snaky you know outfit or whatever that's that's kind of what i think is going on here when we talk about glory and beauty and also this they have to wear linen on undergarments to cover their naked flesh I think that that is picked up by Isaiah and his great vision when he sees the uh, the seraphim who are beings on fire soaring back and forth and they cover with their with their wings their eyes their feet which is a euphemism for their nakedness their right. their 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 um genitalia and their uh, uh they uh, with the other two they fly right i think there's a little bit of this here too that we still have a picture of heaven in this ordinary uh human uh, earthly way i think is a better way to say it that it, it has its limits because of uh, of uh, you know what can you do with cotton you know <laughs> what can you do with wool uh but you still have this this array of beautiful beings that is a a picture of the heavenly array that god has around him it's not just god it's god and all his his uh his um, court assistants, so to speak, like the the seraphim is the the one that comes down and, and talks to uh, talks to uh, Isaiah uh, first, and I think they have a little bit of that here as well. Well, I don't want to derail the analogy, but I was also thinking um, and contemplating what you were saying, and it drew my mind also to a, a Lutheran ordination. You know, you have this one guy who's becoming ordained or perhaps installed, and it's a pretty ordinary guy, but then he ends up being surrounded. By a lot of other ordinary guys, but then you have parishioners who for sometimes the first time in their lives have seen, you know, 20 vested Lutheran pastors in a room Mm -hmm. and, you know, is not the ornateness of the outfits that is significant. What sort of drives you is, you know, just all the servants there to to put their blessing upon and demonstrate their solidarity with the man being ordained. And so I think that, too, when you were talking about just the sheer fact that they're in the numbers of them, it's striking. Well, that's the that's the situation that I also thought of. I think that's good. I, I'm thinking of my own last installation and how beautiful it was to have so many men come and be a witness to that and in front of a full church where they were just kind of blown away by the visuals. It was yep. great. Well, I'll tell you what, we only have like one minute left, but I'd like to give that minute to you, brother. Uh, anything else you want to lay down um, and give to the people before we close up? Yeah. Uh, w- w- with um, with the repetition, there is some significance to this, uh, first this beauty and glory. And then also Aaron and his sons and Aaron having the sons of Israel on his person and he goes in. I think that one of the things we want to get that is theologically significant, apart from just theologically significance of beauty and glory, is that the high priest, our Lord Jesus, but the high priest in that office, 
has in his mind and in his heart and in the wholeness of his being us, the children of Israel, the children of Abraham, the children of Israel. We are Israelites, right, by faith. He has us in him, on him, you know, in every way that you could imagine. We are ever before God in the person of Jesus. I like it. Makes sense to me. Well, I'll tell you what, it is time for us to bring our discussion to an end, which I hate to do because it's been very enjoyable. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend David Duke, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Newfane, New York, pastor also of St. John Lutheran Church in Youngstown, New York, also the adjunct professor of Old Testament at Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary, St. Catharines, Ontario. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. I always love having you on. I look forward to having you back soon. You know, we're going to be in the Old Testament at least through February, even after we finish Exodus. So maybe we'll have you back for Ruth or Esther, which comes next. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) And folks, thank you for joining us too. Come back tomorrow when we come alongside the priests as they are consecrated for their vocation. Another chapter full of detail, but detail rich with visuals and meaning. I know you'll enjoy it just as you did today. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.